as was uh, mentioned <clears throat> in this morning's reflection on the power of the mind, we can and we are uh, cultivating a pure, wholesome, and beautiful heart-mind through our practice. This evening's talk is about the pure and beautiful mind, the benefits of concentration and insight. And beginning with uh, a quote from William Butler Yeats, from his poem called The Celtic Twilight. We can make our minds so like still water that beings gather about us that they may see their own images and so live for a moment with a clearer, perhaps even a fiercer life because of our quiet. With this evening's talk, we'll explore some of the wholesome, some of the beautiful states or factors of mind, chetasikas in uh, Pali. These beautiful and wholesome factors that are associated with the development and fruits of concentration, and also with the development deepening and fruits of vipassana, insight practice. All of which includes a growing depth and clarity of mindfulness. The chief, as the Buddha called mindfulness. This quality of mind that needs to accompany us through all of our practice. The Buddha's very precise teachings and analysis of these mind states or factors of mind are disclosed in the Abhidhamma Pitaka or the basket, the Abhidhamma basket. So this evening we'll just do a brief review of what this Abhidhamma basket is all about. The Abhidhamma is one of the three baskets, one of the three divisions of the Pali Canon, which is the authoritative record of the Buddha's teaching. The first basket, or sometimes called collection, is the Book of Discipline, containing the rules of conduct for the monks and the nuns, and all of the guidelines regarding governing and living in a Sangha, in a community, in a monastic community or Sangha. The second collection, or basket, brings together all of the Buddha's discourses, all of the teachings, all of the suttas that the Buddha gave over his 45 years of teaching. And the third collection, or basket, is the Abhidhamma Pitaka. And this basket has quite a distinctly different character or quality than the other two. 
whereas it's not a record of discourses and discussions occurring in real-life settings, which both of the other baskets are very much rooted in. But rather, the Abhidhamma is a very clear, detailed, and refined disclosure of mind and mental processes that combine psychology, ethics, virtue, and philosophy from the Buddhist perspective into a very unique and really quite remarkable synthesis and is experiential, meaning it's what we actually experience as our practice develops and blossoms. I, I think it's important in that it can be helpful and inspiring at some point along the way of practice to actually hear, at least in some detail, about some of the more refined experiential processes that take place in practice, to understand a bit more of how the mind works in practice. Through the years of my own practice, I've really found this information quite interesting in and of itself, as well as the fact that this information, this understanding, can really help to counter the fears and other potential aversive reactions to various practice experiences, along with made-up and sometimes fanciful stories or analyses. Also, it can help to uh, uh, counteract uh, the misperceptions and misunderstandings. And also, very important, the attachments and the clinging that can, can come up in practice in relationship to what might be unusual or unfamiliar, or even in relationship to our more familiar experiences. some of which uh, one of my Burmese teachers, Sada Upandita, calls the Dhamma delights of our practice. The Abhidhamma speaks about 35 wholesome or beautiful mental factors or mental states associated uh, with the development phase of concentration and eventually possibly the manifestation of jhana and then ongoing into vipassana practice as mindfulness and wisdom continue to unfold and blossom. The first five factors or mental states are active wholesome mental factors that are part of both the initial and the ongoing development of concentration and also the initial and ongoing development of mindfulness in relationship to insight practice. With the first two factors also being very necessary, as I just mentioned, and active components throughout our practice of insight. The last three of these five factors manifest as active, wholesome, experiential states during specific 
stages of development or the development manifestation of concentration and maybe ongoing into jhana. And they're also active during particular aspects of our vipassana practice. So we'll begin by looking at the first five wholesome factors of mind, which every one of you, each one of you, are experiencing to varying degrees here in this retreat. The first wholesome factor of mind, the Pali word is vitaka, and it's translated uh, into English as initial application, meaning it's the application of the mind, the application of the attention of the mind to the object. Vitaka has the characteristic of directing the mind into the object. And we can use, for most of you, not all of you necessarily all the time, but we'll keep this as our example in our case here, the in and out sensations of the breath at the anapana spot or the movement of the breath in the belly. The function of vitaka, it's classically, the function is uh, described as striking the object. very graphic description that the Abhidhamma speaks about, striking the object. The process uh, experientially manifests as leading or, or training the mind, we could say, to the object. And it's often been called, it's like training a puppy. You know how puppies want to go and do whatever they want to do and they're, you have to keep doing it again and again, training them again and again. Well, that's what we have to do with our mind. It's a lot like training a little puppy. Vitaka has the special task and fruit of inhibiting the hindrance of sloth and torpor, sleepiness and lethargy. Vitaka, and this is an important piece of it, Vitaka is very closely connected, very closely associated with intention, right intention, or wholesome intention, as is spoken about in the Noble Eightfold Path. The intention to bring the mind to the object. So that's the first wholesome factor of mind. And the second uh, in Pali is vichara, the second wholesome factor of mind. This is uh, usually translated as sustained application. Vichara has the characteristic of continued pressure, or uh, in the Abhidhamma it's described as stroking the object, continued pressure on the object, in the sense of meaning staying with it and seeing and knowing how it's manifesting. It's the continuing and sustaining exercise of the mind on the object. And again, in our case here, using the example the, of the sensation, the breath sensation at the anapana spot or somewhere else in the body. 
sustaining the attention, staying with it. Vichara temporarily totally inhibits the hindrance of doubt in deeper states of concentration. And overall, it, uh, it weakens doubt throughout one's ongoing concentration and insight practice as vichara, this sustaining application, is developed. There are some wonderful metaphors or similes in the commentaries to the Abhidhamma highlighting the difference between vitaka and vichara. So the first for vitaka, like a bird spreading its wings to fly, the initial application. Vichara, like a bird gliding through the air without stretched wings, the sustained application. And again another for vitaka, like a bee diving towards a flower, the initial application. And vichara, another similar metaphor, like a bee buzzing above the flower, sustained application. The third wholesome and beautiful quality of mind is in Palipiti. <clears throat> it's called an occasional beautiful or wholesome state of mind. Why is that? <laughs> there are a number of them that we're going to go through that are occasional. And they are um, only uh, wholesome and beautiful if there is no identification and no attachment in relationship to to them when they manifest. Then they're wholesome and beautiful. Otherwise, they're not wholesome and beautiful. So this piti experience, it's translated in lots of different ways. Zest, joy, um... I'll go into it more in just a few minutes. Uh, kind of a joy, gladness, merriment, uh, elation. There's some more we'll go into it shortly. And um, it can be actually quite endearing. And it can be explained as uh, delight and uh, very positive, very pleasurable, bringing a very positive and pleasurable interest in the object. The function of PT is that it refreshes the mind and body. It pervades the mind and it's in its initial stages also the body. It pervades the mind and the body, as I say, only in the initial stages with the body, with kind of thrills, feeling of thrills, sometimes described as rapture, though this word rapture doesn't really uh, cover all of the the nuances of the actual experience. It often manifests as a mind and body quality of, as I mentioned, elation or 
and gladness and exaltation and joy, merriment, um, exhilaration, uh, a kind of satisfaction in the mind. In the commentaries there are five grades, we could say, of piti that are distinguished very clearly that can arise when vitaka and vichara are in place and really perking in our practice. And I'm sure as I go over these with you that some of them will be recognized for some of you as experiences that you've had that have occurred in your own practice to varying degrees. <clears throat> the first is called minor joy or minor piti, minor zest. And it's able to raise the hairs on the body. The second is momentary joy or momentary zest. And it manifests like small flashes of lightning in the mind. The third one is called showering joy or showering zest. And it breaks over the whole body again and again like waves on a seashore. Kind of orgasmic-like. Wave-like. The next one is uplifting joy or uplifting zest. And this can actually uh, cause the body to feel like it's levitating. Sometimes the body just goes very straight upright, sitting very upright, kind of on its own, very, very long, and almost sometimes feels like it's stretched way long upright. And I've heard uh, for some yogis that uh, there actually is a, a levitating. It ha- actually does happen. There's a story that um, my friend and teaching colleague, Sayadaw Vivekananda, tells about a monk at a particular monastery in Burma um, who did sitting practice in his kuti on his bed in his room, in his kuti. And <clears throat> he would rise up, and then fall over again and again and again. And he was uh, quite um, enamored with this experience. So uh, he had told uh, uh, the other monks about it. And they were very curious and interested. And he said, okay, if you come to my room and you look through the window of my door at a certain time, you'll be able to see this happening. I'm going to practice so that it happens. And uh, so... According to what Saito Vivekananda says, he actually did that. The monks came and they watched the show and he rose up and fell over, rose up and fell over. (laughs) So that's one. Um, The next one is called pervading joy or pervading zest. And this floods the whole mind and body with a very fresh, refreshing, bright elation. And the Abhidhamma description of it is like a flood that fills a cavern. As a factor of mind, a sustained PT, particularly PT that's experienced much more as a mind state than in the body, has the potential to weaken the hindrance of ill will. And with a very focused and absorbed 
attention uh, on the object as happens with the manifestation of jhana or uh, towards jhana anyways, PT temporarily completely inhibits ill will during that time. And PT at this point is only in the mind. It's only a mind state. It's not a bodily experience. The next, the fourth uh, wholesome and beautiful state of mind, in Pali the word is sukha. And that's usually translated as happiness, but there's more to it than that. We'll look at that. It's also an occasional. It's considered an occasional. An occasional state of mind. And wholesome, meaning that it's wholesome only if it manifests without identification or attachment. If there's identification or attachment, it's not wholesome. So sukha. This is really uh, a mental factor. It's a very pleasant, happy, mental feeling that's born out of mind contact with an object. It's a very sweet, blissful, mental feeling born out of detachment from all sensual pleasures. And so it's often explained as unworldly or spiritual happiness. And it counters and weakens the hindrance of restlessness and worry. It can be very gratifying, this experience of sukha, engendering a very deep sense of gratification. And because of this, it's quite easy to get attached to it. So it's important that mindfulness really remains strong and clear. There are some descriptions of uh, piti and sukha in the commentaries uh, from the Abhidhamma, and I'd like to share a couple of these with you. (coughs) Piti, joy, as I mentioned, sometimes called rapture, and this is the description in the Abhidhamma commentary, is like a weary traveler going along a path in a great desert in summer and is overcome by heat and thirst. He or she sees a man and asks, Where's water? And the other says, Soon there is a dense forest and a lake. Go there and you will get some water. Upon hearing this, traveler is glad, joyful and delighted. And then more glad and delighted when she or he sees leaves on the ground and then people with wet clothes and hair and hears the sound of wild fowl. And then sees the dense green forest like a net of jewels growing by the edge of the lake. Sees the clear transparent water and water lilies growing in the lake. And then is more and more joyful, glad and delighted. So that's piti. 
sukkah. This ease, uh, sense of ease and sweet happiness. And the Abhidhamma commentary speaks of it metaphorically like this. Or in a, it's like a traveler entering, entering the forest shade and enjoying the water. And the description is this. He or she descends into the lake, bathes and drinks with pleasure, eats the fibers and stalks of the lilies, adorns himself or herself with lotus flowers, then ascends the lake and dries off with a bathing cloth and lies down in the cool shade with the breeze blowing ever so slightly, so gently, and says, Oh, bliss, oh, bliss. (laughs) With the sense of ease and sweet happiness, grown strong, quite strong, enjoying the taste of this object of sukha. So piti, joy, or rapture, and sukha, the sweet bliss, blissful happiness, they're closely connected, but they're not the same. And piti always gains prominence, comes forth and develops before sukha. And it provides the causal foundation for sukha to arise. The fifth of these wholesome mental factors is in Pali called ikagata, one-pointedness. <clears throat> and this uh, Pali term, it literally means, it's used literally translated as a one-pointed state. This mental factor is a primary component It's the essence of samatha, it's the essence of concentration. Be it a sustained and potentially absorbed concentration or a momentary focus of concentration as is the primary mode used in vipassana, in insight practice. In a developed uh, concentration, One-pointedness, if it's jhana concentration, it's the fourth jhana. It's primary in that jhana. And it temporarily, completely inhibits sensual desire and weakens it overall. Ikagata, this capacity to focus the attention in a one-pointed manner, is a necessary condition for any deeply transformative meditative attainment. So it needs to be developed whether one is practicing concentration specifically or one is much more oriented towards vipassana practice. The capacity to be able to focus one-pointed in a momentary way or in a sustained way is essential. And you are practicing that over and over and over. And I don't know how many times I can say over again. (laughs) Every one of you. The function of 
ikigata or ikigata, is that one is <clears throat> able to very closely contemplate the object. Though it cannot perform this function on its own. It requires the joint or cooperative action of the other four factors that we've just explored. And all of the associated states, which some of which will be uh, just going over lightly. So vichara, vitaka, applying the attention is necessary. Vichara, sustained attention is necessary. Again, along with various other associated mental states. Piti, sukha, all of this necessary for uh, ikagata to take place. They work together. The next wholesome state, and it's also an occasional, considered an occasional, as it's only wholesome, as long as it's associated with a wholesome uh, object of attention. And this is, uh, in Pali, it's adimoka, which is decision or resolve. So again, it's only wholesome if it's associated with uh, a wholesome object. Because we can be resolved and decisive about something that isn't wholesome. It has the characteristic of a conviction and the function of not groping around. So it's a clarity of mind, not looking for, not trying to find, not groping around, but conviction, clarity of a decision and a resolve of the attention into this particular wholesome object. Its nearest or most immediate cause is that it needs something to be convinced of, convinced about. So, for instance, again in our case here, making a resolve, a decision, a resolve, to give one's complete attention to the breath, making a resolve or a decision to give one's complete attention to the metaphrases and the image that is receiving the meta-energy. It's compared to, in the Abhidhamma, it's compared to a stone pillar owing to its unshakable resolve regarding the object. So that's uh, adimoka, decision or resolve. The next uh, wholesome state, 
And again, it's an occasional. And again, the same for the same reason. It has to be associated with a wholesome um, mental object for it to be wholesome. Is in Pali, virya, or energy. It's the state of action who, of one who is vigorous. And its characteristic is exertion. Exertion and supporting or mobilizing or marshalling one's energy. So energetic, wholesome energy. Its function is to support the states that it's associated with. And it manifests as non-collapsing, meaning it's buoyant, it's uplifted. The mind, the heart, the energy doesn't collapse when it's there, when it's present, when virya is present. The closest cause for this energy to manifest is a sense of spiritual urgency. So consider that in relationship to yourself. A sense of spiritual urgency. Another, uh, that's a primary cause. Another uh, cause uh, to engage uh, in, to engage this virya is uh, an experience of various experiences that arouse our energy. So it could be as simple as taking a refreshing or maybe a brisk walk. Or maybe doing 15 or 20 minutes of mindful yoga or, or tai chi or qigong or some kind of mindful exercise. Or any thing really, any wholesome activity that stirs and inspires one's internal energy towards vigorous action, and in our case here meaning towards a very energetic practice. So there are ways that you can work with this in your practice when you're energy is flagging, when your energy is collapsing, by using some of these uh, examples that I just gave. And we learn how to do this over time and how to work with it. The next wholesome factor of mind in Pali is chanda. And this is wholesome desire. It means the desire to act, the desire to perform an action uh, or to achieve a result. And again, it's an occasional. It has to be connected to a wholesome object. This uh, kind of desire needs to be distinguished from unwholesome desire that stems from greed or and lust. Chanda is a wholesome desire when it's associated with various wholesome intentions. So it can function as the virtuous desire to achieve a worthy goal as in relationship to our practice. 
and it's spoken of in the Abhidhamma metaphorically as stretching forth the mind's hand towards the object. Stretching forth the mind's hand toward the object. So following uh, these eight that I've just talked about a little bit, there's quite a long list um, uh, of universal beautiful factors or universal uh, beautiful and wholesome states of mind, some of which uh, we've already explored in this retreat and others that we will be exploring as the retreat continues to unfold. So I'm just going to go over these, uh, mention them. Some of them you will be very clear to you that we've already explored them quite thoroughly, some of them a little bit. I'm not going to go into much of an explanation of them at this point. So the first one is faith, and we will talk about that um, in time. And the next one is mindfulness, which we've talked about a lot and we'll continue to explore. Uh, the next two, um, in Pali, they're hiri and otapa. Hiri is usually uh, translated as moral shame, and otapa is usually translated as fear of wrongdoing, or uh, the classical translation is moral dread. And these two considered very beautiful mental factors, hiri and otapa, are considered to be absolutely necessary for the protection of the family, the protection of the community, protection of the world, and for the protection of, in relationship to all of our relationships. So the, and the next two are non-greed. Often these, not sometimes these are, these are uh, stated uh, classically as uh, non this and non that. So the next two are non-greed and non-hatred. Beautiful and wholesome states of mind. Non-greed and non-hatred. The Next uh, few are associated with equanimity, the neutrality of mind, the neutrality of the heart, the tranquility of mind and heart, which is an extensive calmness that we experience as the mind develops, a tranquility of consciousness, a lightness of mind and heart, which is really a brightness, a brightness or lightness of mind and heart. The opposite, we could say, of a heaviness or the sinking of the mind, the sinking of the heart, the sinking of consciousness. A lightness or brightness of consciousness. The next uh, two are malleability, malleability of mind and heart, meaning non-rigidity, 
non-rigidity of mind, non-rigidity of heart, malleability of consciousness, non-rigidity of consciousness. And the next one, the word is wieldiness of mind and heart and wieldiness of consciousness, meaning the ability of the mind of consciousness to go where it needs to go. The next two are proficiency of mind and heart and proficiency of consciousness, meaning a clarity and a quickness of mind and a clarity and quickness of consciousness. And the next is honesty or uprightness of mind and heart. And uprightness or honesty of consciousness. And then the next four we've explored, uh, uh, the first two quite a bit, and we'll explore uh, a little bit more with the others as we go along. They're the four divine abidings, or the four Brahma-viharas. Metta, these are very beautiful and wholesome states of mind. Metta, unconditional loving-kindness. Compassion, karuna, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, or I sometimes call it contagious joy, and equanimity, upeka in Pali. So we've just looked at, I think, something like 28 wholesome and beautiful states of mind. We haven't looked deeply, but... As I went along, I'm sure that many of you uh, recognize some of these from your own experience in practice. There are three more uh, beautiful mental factors, and they're called abstinences. They're very distinct mental factors that the Buddha spoke about very often. And they come about through uh, three different methods or three different uh, ways. The first is called natural abstinence, which means the abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm. Classically, they're called evil deeds. We don't use that word much in English, at least not in Buddhism, but. Uh, so we'll stick with uh, harmful deeds, the word, the term harmful. So this abstinence from mental and physical deeds that cause harm, when the opportunity arises to engage in them due to various conditions. So maybe conditions such as uh, one's social position in life, one's age, one's work, one's level of education. There's many conditions that uh, may offer an opportunity uh, to uh, act out of, in ways that cause harm. 
but we abstain from those naturally. Uh, we abstain naturally uh, from these particular physical and mental uh, deeds out of um, wisdom and out of compassion. So there's some understanding and heartfelt compassion that keeps us from acting in these harmful ways. The second way that abstinence occurs is abstinence by undertaking the precepts, the guidelines which we've done here in retreat, and some of you may also live by them uh, at home or try to work with them at home in your daily life. This commitment to live one's life observing the precepts, abstaining from killing, abstaining from harmful speech, from taking what's not offered, from not taking what's not offered, abstaining from sexual misconduct, abstaining from taking substances that cloud the mind. Included in, in the uh, a broader view of the precepts is a deliberate abstinence from wrong speech, meaning abstaining from false speech, from lying, from slanderous speech, hurtful speech, from harsh speech, and from engaging in frivolous talk, gossip kinds of speaking and talk that is meaningless. The other, the next thing that's included in a broader uh, 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 stance of uh, taking the precepts is right action. So deliberately abstaining from wrong or harmful bodily action, which obviously is killing, uh, stealing, and sexual misconduct, which I've already mentioned. And the last one is right livelihood. So deliberately abstaining from wrong livelihood, such as, and this is the classical definition of these, and we can interpret them in our time uh, and our cultures in, in the way that it, it makes sense. Dealing in poisons is one way that it's talked about. Dealing in weapons, dealing in intoxicants. Dealing in, with animals for slaughter or people being used for unwholesome or in har- use, being used in unwholesome and harmful ways these particular three function as a kind of shrinking back from harmful deeds and they manifest as an abstinence from engaging in these deeds and I think it's interesting to note that the closest and most pertinent causes for this shrinking back and abstaining are the really special and beautiful qualities of faith and the beautiful quality of hiri and otapa, qualities of hiri and otapa, shame of engaging in harmful deeds and fear of wrongdoing. And lastly, 
having few wants and wishes. We could say that all three of these beautiful mental factors can be regarded as the mind, the heart's wholesome aversion to wrongdoing. And they really are a natural abstinence for most of us. They come out of understanding and they are also out of wisdom and um, compassion. And they also are uh, supported and encouraged through undertaking life with the precepts. The last of the three abstinences that the Buddha spoke about is classically uh, described as abstinence by eradication. And this comes about through the fruits of engaging in the supramundane path of the purification of the heart and the mind. The Buddha-Dhamma path of awakening, of liberation. And what's interesting about this is what is eradicated is the disposition or the inclination or the disposition towards engaging in deeds that cause harm. There's no as, as practice really, really fruits deeply and fully, there's no disposition, there's no inclination eventually. And different ones are eradicated as time goes on to even, even consider, doesn't come into the mind, to engage in harmful action of speech, body, or mind. The first two abstinences are mundane. They're very common. They're ordinary in a worldly sense. And the third one is supramundane or the fruits of deep, deep practice. It's not common in the worldly sense. But it's the fruits of a purified, spiritually of a very spiritually purified mind and heart. The last of this long list of beautiful states of mind is non-delusion, the wisdom faculty the wholesome and beautiful mental factor of understanding, of insight, which is really the essence of our path of practice. This path of the heart, path of the mind. And a quote from Carlos Castaneda regarding this. 
A person of knowledge chooses a path with heart and follows it, then looks and rejoices and laughs, then sees and knows. The importance of beginning to clearly recognize at least some of these experiential states in relationship to your own practice experience as concentration and mindfulness continue to blossom is that with knowledge of what's occurring and why it's occurring, we have the opportunity, we have the possibility to see, to recognize, and to know these beautiful, wholesome states without attachment, without identification, and without fear or other various aversive reactions or misunderstandings or misperceptions but rather with what is classically called dispassion, which is really what allows the continuing development of our practice to just keep unfolding and blossoming. In their fullness, in their utmost maturity, these are the wholesome and beautiful qualities or the wholesome and beautiful capacities of a liberated heart, a liberated mind. I'd like to... um, One of the things I'd like to end this talk with is um, some advice... uh, from maybe an unlikely source uh, by a a man named Robert Piercig. Some of you may know who he was. And his book, uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, that some of you may have read some years ago. I see a few smiles. Uh It was quite a book. (laughs) And this is from that book. So the thing to do when working on a motorcycle as in any other task, is to cultivate the peace of mind which does not separate oneself from one's surroundings. When that is done successfully, then everything else follows naturally. Peace of mind produces right values. Right values produce right thoughts. Right thoughts produce right actions. And right actions produce work which will be a material reflection for others to see of the serenity at the center of it all. And in closing the talk with some words from another teacher and great practitioner from the 11th century, uh, Atisha, who was a 
great 11th century Tibetan Buddhist master. The greatest achievement is selflessness. The greatest worth is self-mastery. The greatest quality is seeking to serve others. The greatest precept is continual awareness. The greatest medicine is the emptiness of everything. The greatest action is not conforming with the world's ways. The greatest magic is transmuting the passions. The greatest generosity is non-attachment. The greatest goodness is a peaceful mind. The greatest patience is humility. The greatest effort is not concerned with results. The greatest meditation is a mind that lets go. The greatest wisdom is seeing through appearances. And let's sit silently for just a couple of moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.